and welcome to the Presto Music Podcast. Post-war America was undoubtedly a heady time, and no more so than in the world of orchestral music, an era where conductors regularly made the cover of Time magazine, orchestral reputations were being made and broken, and dynasties were being forged. At a time when performances were increasingly being recorded and disseminated for the masses on long-playing records. These LPs are now of course finding a new and remastered home on CD, and three conductors in particular, Artur Radzinski in New York, Rafael Kubelik in Chicago, and Eugene Ormandy in Philadelphia are among the latest to be boxed up. There's nobody better to discuss these recordings with than someone who, though he wasn't quite around at the time, nonetheless has probably forgotten about more records than I've ever heard, and is already now making a hat-trick of appearances on the Presto Music Podcast. Welcome back, Rob Cowan! Thank you very much, Paul, and delighted to be here. The first of our triumvirate is the Polish Artur Radzinski, whose recordings for the Columbia label, mostly with the New York Philharmonic, have now found a new home in a Sony box set. Rob, can you introduce the career of Artur Radzinski, orchestra builder? Well, that's his main claim to fame, to be absolutely honest. Um, that he built the NBC Symphony Orchestra for Toscanini. Toscanini gave his first concert with them on Christmas Eve in 1937. And various other conductors, including Stokowski and uh, Eric Kleiber, conducted them. They were a marvellous, marvellous band. And I think that this was... Rajinsky's great claim to fame, more as an orchestral trainer and a virtuoso conductor than as a subtle musician, which, to be absolutely honest, he wasn't. But this set is, uh, of his recordings, the Sony recordings with the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, he also recorded with the Cleveland Orchestra before Zell. It's very uh, important to remember that although Zell uh, obviously trained them to a tremendous standard of execution, Rajinsky also got marvellous results from them. And uh, the New York Philharmonic legacy, I think, is probably the most impressive segment of his, uh, his recorded output. Yes, he created a foundation in both Cleveland and Chicago for George Sell in Cleveland and Fritz Reiner in Chicago. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got the first excerpt that you'd like to share? I have. Well... When I first heard this recording of the William Tell Overture, um, I was convinced that it was the version that's used at the start of the Lone Ranger Cowboy series on television. Of course, you won't. You're too young to remember that. Uh, but uh, I was an addict when I was a kid of the Lone Ranger. And I thought, this has got to... Well, actually, it's not. That was a studio orchestra. Uh, but it's so fast and so brilliant. The interesting thing about it is if you... Uh, listen to recordings by Toscanini uh, of the same piece, he's nowhere near as fast as Rajinsky. Much more of a bounce, much more elegant, much more like a gallop, whereas Rajinsky absolutely goes hell for leather. It's incredibly exciting.
Yeah, so you mentioned the Lone Ranger there, Rob. To me, this sounds more like a steam train than a horse. <laughs> well, my wife, when I, I said, Georgie, you've got to listen to this, and I put it on, and she looked at me and said, you're joking, they've got to be playing that at the wrong speed, <laughs> which a lot of people will think they were. You know, the record was playing at the wrong speed. Well, it's it's brilliant. And that was from an album of orchestral favourites. So there were two albums that he did of sort of Twilight concerts, and that opened one of them. And um, the whole set, I think, uh, it gives you a very, very good idea of what Rajinsky was like in both small pieces and large-scale works. And uh, he had a great sense of structure. You know, he did the Brahms symphonies, the, uh, not not all of them uh, with the New York Philharmonic, but the first two, which Toscanini was particularly fine in. And you can tell where that training came from, where that that approach originated, if you like, in terms of the uh, American musicians. So Rajinsky very much liked Toscanini in the way he viewed Brahms. This is quite sort of an American approach to orchestral virtuosity, isn't it? They really loved really putting their orchestras through the through their paces. That's right. And it's it's also musically very straightforward. You know, the thing about the Brahms second, which I listened to again last night, is that there are very few bends in the line, has a wonderful sense of line, uh, very lyrical, uh, very dramatic in the in the last movement. And the clarity and the balancing is immaculate. And this was something that Rajinsky was particularly good at, getting everything to sound, all the contrapuntal lines coming through without any disturbance from other instruments, if you like. Well, for my pick from this set, I've picked an excerpt from Kofiev's Fifth Symphony, which at the time, of course, was very much contemporary music. Here's the Andante First Movement. Personally, I found Rodzinski's quite hard-driven style, I think actually more effective here in the Prokofiev. Uh, the, the music is perhaps more mechanistic, shall we say, than the Rossini. Uh, do you feel that certain leadership styles from conductors lend themselves to different repertoire? Absolutely right. That's true. Uh, mind you, different repertoire uh, lends itself to different, differing approaches from, from various conductors. So we're talking about Brahms. You've got people like Furtwängler, Klemperer, uh, Mengelberg and indeed Rajinsky and Toscanin, they were all entirely unalike. Um, in Prokofiev, it's very, very interesting because on the one hand, you've got this pile-driving approach that uh, you get from Rajinsky in, uh, on this performance, and you've got somebody like Chilebadaki, who I heard do the symphony in London in the 1970s, who has great 
breadth and brings an epic grandeur to the piece. And that's entirely different. And um, the Russians, people like uh, uh, Rostyevsky as well, all very different, all bringing out different aspects of the music. But Rodzinski, I think, uh, makes it sound almost filmic, which is, which is interesting. Which is very appropriate for Prokofiev. It, it, very appropriate for Prokofiev, given his film scores that he wrote. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's impressive. You could perhaps say that the strength of the music lies within its ability to be interpreted in a variety of different ways. Brahms' music is so great because it is able to be interpreted in so many different yeah. ways. Yeah, the greater the music, the greater the potential for interpretative variety, I think. Absolutely. Well, Rodzinski stormed out of New York in 1947 to Chicago for yet another mere three-year stint and was replaced in Chicago by the great Czech conductor Rafał Kublik, who himself only spent three years in the post. Fortunately, in that time, making an outstanding series of recordings for the Mercury label, now boxed up on Eloquence and released on the 11th of June. Rob, why was his time in Chicago cut short? Well, there was a notorious critic, Claudia Cassidy, who absolutely loathed Kublik's work and uh, took every opportunity to to, uh, have a go at him in the press. Basically, what the trustees of the orchestra, and they were responsible for getting rid of him, uh, objected to were his uh, performances of modern music. Not not the performances of modern music, but the fact that he selected uh, contemporary music or what was contemporary in the day, and they objected to that. But they wanted the, the greatest hit syndrome, you know, to... to and it would have been quite popular today with certain, in, certain, uh, uh, in certain quarters. But uh, that was why. And he was a brave... Uh, you know, the thing about Kubelik, he was a real... He was a pioneer and he was a very brave man, you know, who stood against political oppression, uh, both the Nazis and the communists. He refused to go back to communist uh, Czechoslovakia post uh, just after the war. He came and settled over here. And then, of course, he'd, he'd settled in America, eventually in Switzerland, conducting the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra uh, in, in Munich. And you know, he was somebody, he was a creative person himself. He wrote some very impressive uh, uh, orchestral works, some of which have been recorded under his own baton. And, you know, everything Kubelik does has that sort of ease of passage about it. I always think of him as a sort of a latter-day Ford of Engler, you know, simply because he is a man who knows the music from the inside. You feel that he understands the process of composition and everything you hear has that knowledge, foreknowledge, if you like, when it comes to certain works that we don't know, uh, like the Bloch Concerto Grosso Number no. 1, for example, which to me is the most glorious piece, very rarely heard. And, and if you think in terms of neoclassical works by Martineau and Stravinsky that were being written around about that time, this is such a joyful work. And Kublik's Chicago recording, I've got a test pressing, a test LP pressing, which I got off a collector many years ago, and I've treasured it, and I'm absolutely delighted to see this particular recording come into this uh, set and not only the complete performance there's also a a run-through of some of it as well so you get uh, extra value in an interpretation which is among Kublik's greatest in Chicago. Yes I was absolutely delighted to see this recording uh, in this set Uh, let's sample the opening prelude. 
Ernest Bloch's Concerto Grosso, performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Raphael Kublik. Yeah, as you said, it's a wonderful piece, Rob. It's remarkably expressive for a piece of neoclassicism, isn't it? It certainly is, and the uh, you know the the emotional clout that it has uh, is 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 actually quite remarkable. You know, not everything of Bloch is quite as instantly appealing as that is, but that I think and the Violin Concerto are the two masterpieces that we can we, we can really appreciate very easily. You know, critics seem much more comfortable being critical, and perhaps they do now. There's an article of Time magazine that simply labelled Rosinski as not a great conductor, with no gift for fanning fire and excitement into his players. And as you've mentioned, Acidy Cassidy, hounding Kubelik out of Chicago. I can't imagine a critic having that much power now, Rob, as much as you might want it. <laughs> I would never want it. In fact, I, I, you know, having reviewed records for years, the last thing anybody wants to do is take any notice of me. I mean, what, what I want to do is guide people. And the thing is, you learn to read a critic. You learn to read their likes and their dislikes and their prejudices and, and their uh, the things that they really love so that they guide you through their own personalities and their own tastes to things that you think you will enjoy yourself. So, uh, uh, I no, I don't think any critic would have that sort of power. And I don't think listeners are that stupid. The thing is that listeners are... Incredibly educated today in comparison with uh, um, with what they were like years ago. You know, you've you've had years of the gramophone, for example, which has been hugely educational since the nineteen twenties, and other music magazines, and of course now with Wikipedia and and all the various um, sites that you get um, up online, you can look up anything. You could you can spend a day reading about a particular performance by a particular conductor and still not exhaust what's available. So it's different. There's so many opportunities to educate yourself now. Educate yourself in music theory. You can educate yourself in in, in score reading, anything. So I think the, the, the potential for learning is so much greater now, which I think gives more credence to what a, what a critic says. Mercury was at the forefront of recording technology in the early 50s and included on this 10 CD set for the first time is a Mozart Prague symphony in experimental stereo. What is experimental stereo? Well, it's basically binaural, which is a sort of two channel, but it's not 
really set up to be stereo in the way that a, that a proper stereo recording team would make it. But the results, uh, particularly in Kublik's recording of the Prague Symphony of Mozart, the chap called Bert White used to go around with his, uh, with his setup, stereo or binaural setup, all over America making these recordings, Stokowski and Kubelik and other people. And to be honest, Paul, you listen to this, uh, and and Reiner recorded Mozart symphonies in Chicago, with uh, also in Chicago with uh, for RCA Living Stereo. There's hardly any difference in terms of quality between this early Mercury recording in stereo or binaural and a living presence recording that would a living stereo recording that would have been made. Um, around about this, just a, just a couple of years later, it's it's remarkable. quite surprising that they made them. I can't imagine there was many people who owned the required kit to get the best out of these recordings at the time. They were very much ahead of their time. Well, that's a very good point. But mind you, Deco were recording uh, stereo and binaural recordings long before stereo LPs were available. Uh, but uh, if you listen to this, and, and it was years before stereo records came on the market but you listen to this and you know I've done a brilliant job at eloquence uh, transferring it uh, and you would never believe that it wasn't from about 1958-1959. And should you wish to find out more about this remarkable series of Mercury recordings then a new podcast hosted by Charlotte Gardner from the Gramophone explores the production of these records featuring uh, interviews with Wilma Cozart Fine who spearheaded their production a link to which will be available on the podcast description i met wilma by the way oh really yes um it was in the 90s when just when the mercury label was being launched on on cd and um <laughs> she was amazing because her voice and you'll hear it on this podcast it's 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 incredible it's so american she she sounds like she ought to have come off the medium program or something <laughs> like that such a character and so lovely and so totally dedicated uh to the cause of mercury living presence and an incredibly good producer well, alongside Kubelik's Chicago recordings, his Decca recordings, mostly with the Vienna Philharmonic, have also been boxed up by Eloquence. What are some of your highlights from the Decca set? Well, the main recording there that, that, that I value uh, is Marflust with the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra, uh, which has a performance of Scharke 
about the this sort of Amazon woman um, that is probably the most thrilling movement from the cycle. It's the third piece comes directly after Voltava. Uh, the end of that is just utterly electrifying. Now there are loads of Kublik recordings of my vast with various orchestras, the Boston Symphony, the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra, um, and uh, the Czech Philharmonic Orchestra. But, you know, all right, the sound is okay. It's, it's, it's a stereo recording, a little bit cavernous, but the brass, the way the orchestra goes for it, it's really led off the leash in a way that I don't think any other recording has been. You can almost trace Kubelik's career through his recordings of Mavlast, can't you? you can. From the you early can. Chicago performance that's also in the Mercury Box to the triumphant homecoming with the Czech Philharmonic after the fall of the Berlin Wall. That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, as for other things, um, well, I do like the Slavonic dances, not as much as I like the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra performances, which have a little bit more swagger and exuberance, but they're beautifully played. Uh, there's a lovely new world, although the core anglais at the beginning of the Largo is a little bit recessed. You know, it, it, it gets better focus as it goes on. And the uh, Israel Serenade for Strings, Israel Philharmonic Serenade for Strings is very lovely as well. So I'd say there are some, some and, and the operas, of course, The Merry Wives of Windsor uh, from Munich and the um, Der Freischutz, with, which is so atmospheric. Uh, that uh, I would say it's almost as good as the Carlos Kleiber. So it's a great set. It's a great set, I would say. Uh, uh, musically, as distinctive as the Chicago set. Yes, there's a wonderful Brahms cycle, which is really urgent, isn't it? Yes, it is very urgent. And actually, if you compare that with the Munich recordings on Orfeo, it could be a different conductor, except that they're both very insightful. But uh, as you say, there's the urgency to the Vienna Philharmonic set. Eloquence brought that set out on its own on two CDs, but it's it's better to have the whole 
the whole kit and caboodle of the Kublik and Decker, you know. Absolutely agreed. Well, if our previous two conductorships were noticeable for their brevity, then Ormandy's extraordinary 44-year tenure at the Philadelphia is remarkable for its length. What are some of the key characteristics of the Stokowski sound that he inherited and preserved on Sony's remarkable 120-CD set of his complete mono recordings recorded between 1944 and 1958? Where do I go? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I looked at this and I thought, apart from that, that, that I had to actually do a workout before accepting it through the door. <laughs> it's so incredibly heavy. Um, but once I opened it, and and it, it's and the great thing about this set is that so many of the recordings have either never been issued here before on LP or CD, or never been on CD. Um, and the interesting thing about Ormandy, who was uh, you know Blau was his original name. He was a violinist. He recorded as a violinist. Uh, he he was conductor of the Minneapolis. Symphony Orchestra as it was in the 1930s and then later on he came over co-conducted the Philadelphia with Stokowski but this idea that he inherited the Stokowski sound and uh, just left it as it was is simply inaccurate uh, he it's very interesting there's another case which is quite similar of uh, the Concertgebouw under Willem Mehlberg when Edward von Bynum came in to the uh, Concertgebouw, he did the sort of things with the orchestra that Ormandy did with the Philadelphia Orchestra. In other words, a lot of, I mean, Mengelberg used incredible portamenti, um, Van Bynum ironed a lot of those out, a lot of the, uh, I would say, mannerisms, because I'm not, there's nothing wrong with individuality, but some of the more extreme gestures were countered by a much straighter approach to the music. And the same with Ormandy. If you compare Ormandy's approach to certain works with Stokowski's, Stokowski used the swooping portamenti, you know, so extreme. The Tchaikovsky Fifth, for example, um, this yawning. I mean, it's beautiful in its way because he got the orchestra Stokowski to play so magnificently, but it can be distracting for people who are not used to it. Too much of a good thing, perhaps. Too much of a good thing. Yes, I think so. And although, as I say, I find myself going back to them a lot, but Ormond's performances have texture. They have richness of sound. They have intelligence. They have a sound. Uh, they have a sense of musical structure. They have clarity. And yet there is this luxuriance, which was exaggerated, I think, once he left the mono era and Columbia sort of edged him into the stereo era, where his laurels that he was resting on flowered so much <laughs> he slept on them a bit. Um, I think that uh, in the mono era, the, the performances, I'm thinking particularly of the Brahms symphonies, are much more taut. They're no less expressive because he re-recorded all the Brahms symphonies in stereo. All the Brahms symphonies are also in the mono box. But a particularly beautiful performance and thrilling as well in the last two movements is the fourth symphony. That wonderful melody, um, this big string melody, its return is sumptuous. And you've got an excerpt from the slow movement.
Yeah, I found a really strong sense of trajectory in this, but not necessarily rushed. I was also very impressed with the Brahms three in this set. It was really alive, I felt, to the emotional ebbs and flows in this symphony. So crucial to a good performance. I couldn't agree more. He makes it sound like Brahms is eroica. That opening, it, it's it's arresting. It brings you in. It 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 flies you away. And that's what that music is about. So I think it's wonderful. I mean, there's so much repertoire that's interesting, especially the Americana. Um, you know, you get symphonies by Walter Piston, William Schumann. You get to Victor Herbert, which is a real sort of socket to me production. I mean, that is major hi-fi, major mono hi-fi, the like of which you won't find, well, as, as impressive as any of the Mercury recordings. Uh, also, I think Roy Harris, who's a sort of a Lone Ranger <laughs> style composer. You know, you can imagine him uh, trotting across the prairies. He has this sense of space. The only thing about Harris, and I love Harris's music, there are two symphonies or three symphonies. The seventh, which we're going to hear a little bit of. There's the sixth, which is the Gettysburg, which is fabulous. And the third, of course, which is the most famous. But you do sometimes get a sense that... Uh, all his symphonies uh, revisit the third in, at one time or another, but it's still lovely, lovely music. The end of the seventh is particularly impressive. Well, let's hear that now, performed by, of course, the Philadelphia Orchestra and conducted by Eugene Ormandy. shame that none of these American symphonies have really entered the repertoire. Why do you feel that might be the case? I don't know. I suppose we've got our own symphonies and a lot of those haven't entered the repertoire. The symphonies of Bax and Rubber and people like that. You know, it's it's a very interesting question. I suppose the great symphonies that, that have entered the repertoire have got a sort of thematic distinction and that's what makes them so uh, appealing for people. You know, we were talking about my flask before, and although it doesn't often get uh, performed over here, it is so memorable. And the Harris, the Harris Third is memorable, once you've played it about 70 times, <laughs> but, it, but it is memorable, and it's a lovely piece. And Sibelius is incredibly memorable, but there, there is a combination of thematic distinctiveness and atmosphere and I think a lot of these other symphonies they just fall short a little bit of that ideal. Well for my first selection from this set I've picked a recording that highlights two things that we do readily associate with this orchestra the connection to Sergei Rachmaninoff and Ormandy predecessor Stokowski's love of orchestral transcriptions. Here Rachmaninoff's famous piano prelude opus 3 number 2 is transmogrified into a miniature gothic tone poem. Thank you. 
Rob, a bit of a guilty pleasure for yourself as well? Well, I will say it's as camp as Chloe. (laughs) (laughs) There's no doubt about that. I mean, look, I love these things. I love some of the Bach transcriptions, not all of them, uh, but I love people who do things with an outsized imagination. And that's certainly, that's actually an incredibly good transcription of its kind. It's Kaye, isn't it, who made that one? And Ormandy conducts it magnificently. So, no, not so guilty, actually. (laughs) Pretty, pretty, pretty impressive choice. Um, and as I say, there are other transcriptions throughout the set. I like the Hershey K uh, Gottschalk suite. That's fantastic. which has got the banjo, which involves the orchestra and I think two harps. Fantastic. And uh, this is the thing. This is another thing. This the element of journeying and discovering throughout the set, which is tremendous. You, know, you can hear like the Tchaikovsky, the last Tchaikovsky symphonies. And Mozart, now, who would have thought that Ormandy was, would have turned out to be a great Haydn conductor? And in the Mozart 40th Symphony, in the last movement, he takes both repeats, which brings the playing time up to nine minutes. Now, this is 1956. Can you find me another conductor who did that on disc? I can't find anybody or think of anybody. I'd be very glad if somebody told me of somebody. Well, for my second pick, I've gone for Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade. This piece really lends itself to the Philadelphia Orchestra's playing style, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Largely because of the memories of Stokowski's magnificent performances, which are fairly similar. But uh, Ormandy had this sense of orchestral colour. And, uh, you know, there's a lovely quote in the booklet where Ormandy said that uh, um, yeah, he wanted people to go out sort of whistling the the tune of the last piece on the program and of course you know there's nothing more uh, tuneful in the repertory There is a, um, a, a, a little website where you can get funny Ormandy quotes. Um, <laughs> said that Ormond, Bizet, she's talking about Bizet's symphony in C, and says Bizet was very, very young when he wrote this piece, so play it quietly. <laughs> and it's in the symphony in C is in the set, and. Fortunately, he doesn't play it quietly. It's a, it's a lovely poem. But Scheherazade, no, uh, uh, fantastic. We definitely get the impression of Ormandy as a much more rounded musician in this set than we perhaps given him credit for before, don't we? Definitely. And I think a lot is due to the fact that you get a much more 
dynamic conductor than you got later on, you know. I mean, even with the Brahms B-flat concerto with Rudolf Serkin and Ormandy and Serkin were magnificent. They recorded the concerto three times, uh, once in stereo, which is a very handsome production, and I would definitely recommend that as well. But the two previous ones are are, are in the mono set, and they're marvellous. And I think people tend to underestimate just what an intelligent musician Ormandy was. I think he was just somebody who who, who rolled out tunes in um, uh, exaggerated um, um, garb, you know, soaked in string sonorities. And it wasn't like that at all. Mind you, it wasn't true of Stokowski either. So I think that if you buy this set, and I was just thinking to myself, you know, how does it compare this set with the sets devoted to Toscanini, to Barbaroli, to Cilabadachi, another other people and I think in a way it justifies the purchase even more than they do because you learn so much more about Ormandy than you do about them through their discographies in 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 mega sets. Yeah, Ormandy has been something of a rediscovery in this set and having previously dismissed him, I think as someone who just, as I said in the beginning, inherited a great orchestra and an orchestral sound. Do you feel critics have been unduly harsh on Ormandy as someone who excel, excelled only in these lighter pieces like the transcriptions and Scheherazade? I, I couldn't agree more. And I was guilty of this myself, you see, simply because I swallowed the critical opinions of, you know, oh, Ormandy, it'll be plush, it'll be, you know, it's it's not an intellectual experience. It's rubbish. It can be an intellectual experience. Look at Marla 10. He was the first person to record Marla 10, the Derek Cook um, performing version of, of, of Marla 10. He did Marla 2. He did Bruckner 5. So he did some pretty heavyweight large scale, and the Bruckner 5 was marvellous. That was a stereo Sony recording. But now I think, you know, you accept the cliches, and then suddenly you pick up a, a, a CD or a like I did with one of the Stereo Brahms performances. I think it was the fourth, and I came to the end of it, and I thought, wow. You know, Sony have also brought out George Sell and Bruno Walter in this symphony, but this is equally as good. It's different. It's straighter. It's more along the lines of a Toscanini, but um, it's a pretty marvellous performance. Yes, I think uh, he's been he's been very very his his art has been underplayed by critics, uh, and I think somebody said I, I can't remember where I read this that you know the the public love Ormandy. The critics hate him, <laughs> and they hate him because he doesn't deliver what they love talking about. <laughs> I think that is so true. Um, there's not much to talk about with Ormandy, but there's a hell of a lot to listen to. Yes, it, to me, it's a very good marriage between uh, that beautiful sonority of the orchestra and a very direct, no-nonsense approach to interpretation. It's a really quite actually a good combination. I think it is absolutely right, and... Uh, you always get the feeling he knows what he's doing. You feel you're in safe hands with Ormandy without him sort of cosseting you. And uh, I think that's a, that's a valuable asset. Yeah, and I would say, especially in what was at the time contemporary music, there's a really wonderful set of recordings of contemporary American composition in this set uh, with a Schumann third, uh, William Schumann, I should say. Yes, the third yes. symphony I was particularly impressed by as well. Well, he's a bit like Harris, but a more cerebral composer than Harris was. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Prokofiev VI, 
Now, that must have been the first Western recording. I mean, I do correct me if I'm wrong, but there, there were three early recordings of Proxix. There was Osame, there was uh, Mravinsky, and there was Ormandy, and they're all marvellous in their very different ways. So, you know, you, you get that, uh, you get that sort of work included as well. Perhaps in a way similar to sports teams, perhaps keeping an orchestra on top form for nearly 50 years is actually a greater achievement than making rapid improvements and then moving on like Radzinski. I'm sure that there are many parallels with leadership in all sorts of fields. And given that the results are so clearly audible, conductors provide a real insight into different styles of leadership and how leadership has changed over the years, don't they? But let me say something, Paul, which I think is quite important. You're absolutely right. But the only reason that that relationship between... Um, Ormandy and the orchestra, between Ravinsky and the Leningrad Philharmonic Orchestra, Zell and the Cleveland Orchestra, and Fort Wangler and the Berlin Philharmonic. The only reason, they were all demanding conductors, uh, that uh, the relationship survived was because these were great musicians and they were loved and respected by their players. To be honest, as much as I love the well, I love, but respect the Rajinsky set. It's incredibly exciting. I don't know whether he could have sustained a relationship with an orchestra for 44 years because his musical ingredients, if you like, weren't rich enough to sustain it. Whereas somebody like Toscanini or Zell or Ormandy or I could quote Chilebadachi, you know, mind you, he didn't stay very long with anybody, but, you know, they they all had those qualities and you could keep on rediscovering the music through them because of their wisdom as musicians. Of course, and well, thanks to the wisdom of people like yourself, Rob, it gives us the opportunity to rediscover uh, these great uh, performances and interpretations. Thank you very much again for your inexhaustible knowledge of recordings. (laughs) That's very kind of you, Paul, and thank you so much. Thank you so much. And we hope you'll be back on the podcast uh, just when there's another great big batch of sets to go through. (laughs) Thank you very much much for your time. Thanks to Matt Green for producing, and thanks to you for listening. (laughs) 